to Episode 5 of Mission Transition, Powering BC's Clean Energy Economy. We're a Sierra Club BC podcast mini-series about the transition to the next economy. Hi, I'm Susan Ellerington, along with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. Caitlin, in this episode, we're going to look at who owns our power, who should own our power, and why that's such a confusing and frustrating concept here in BC. So, Caitlin, who would you say owns our power in BC right now? Right. So in most of the province, electricity gets produced by either public or private facilities. And it's administered by BC Hydro, which is a crown corporation owned by the government and by the people of BC. Also, in some parts of the province, the power is produced and sold by Fortis, BC. Now, they're a private corporation that's regulated by the BC government. So it's a little bit complicated. (laughs) It's a bit complicated. And in theory, the people of BC own the power. But do we really own it? Can we exercise that ownership? You know, can we set rates? Can we say where the energy comes from? Can we say who should have access to it? Mm -hmm. These are really good questions. The answers are kind of debatable. And so let's talk about why this issue is coming up. So when I was researching this series, the idea of who owns our energy and who owns our power started creeping into a lot of conversations I was having. And so we thought, well, that would be a good idea then for an episode because energy ownership is shifting around the world Mm -hmm. and but can you hear it in my voice (laughs) this has become an exercise in frustration right and that's because the government's decision to forge ahead with the site mega dam has big implications that we're going to talk about for anyone else who might want to produce electricity using alternative energy that's right so we're talking about all the exciting possibilities for change At the very same time that Site C would anchor us to the existing ownership structure to meet all of our energy needs of the future. If it does indeed get built, right? There is that. What it seems to come down to is that there's differing opinions about how much electricity we're going to need in the future as we transition to a clean energy economy. That's true. And Caitlin, this can get a little bit complicated. So I'm going to tell you the story as to why this matters. I'm going to take you back to my first conversation around energy ownership. I was talking with Valine Christ, who sits on the Sierra Club BC Board of Directors. But we were talking about her day job when this subject came up. My name is Valine Christ, and I'm a Haida citizen. And I'm the co-founder of a place-based not-for-profit called Sweeluweed Sustainability Society. Broad mission of environmental sustainability and long-term long-term stewardship that's based on Haida laws and values. Our first project is an initiative to see the islands transition away from diesel power to renewable sources of community-owned energy. So we have less than 5,000 people that live on the islands, and those island residents are divided into two electrical grid systems. We're in what's called BC Hydro's non-integrated area because we're so remote. The north grid is 100% powered by diesel electricity. So to keep the lights on, um, keep our fridges running, our TVs on, um, requires diesel power. And then we have the south grid that powers just over 1,600 customers. And there is one small hydro plant that does power about 80% of the south grid, but that's still supplemented by diesel. So as a whole, our island is still predominantly powered by diesel um, to the tune of about 10 million litres that's being transported to the island every year. Wow, 10 million litres really does seem like a lot. And, you know, that reminds me of our last episode where we heard examples of how 
First Nations are leading the way in the shift to a new economy. And it was mentioned that burning diesel is really expensive. And so that by shifting to renewable energy, it can actually help decrease energy costs. Yeah, Valiancy's moving away from diesel is a matter of urgency, particularly given the state of climate change. So Suileweed is working hard to install solar panels wherever they can. So huge installation. I believe it's now being um, celebrated as the largest community-owned solar project in B.C., as well, Caitlin, they're installing solar panels on two youth centers and at three youth discovery camps. Valine is mostly talking about bigger buildings there, is she not? Mm-hmm. And all municipal or band owned. So then what about generating power for residents? Yeah, well, here's where we come back to something we've talked about in earlier episodes of this uh, series. You can't produce power and sell it to third parties in B.C. You have to sell it to B.C. Hydro, who is then responsible for distributing it to residents. And does BC Hydro want to do that on Haida Gwaii? Well, they're not sure yet because they're not at that point. But Valine says the fact that they have to wait for BC Hydro to approve any future plans like that is really frustrating. Suileweed is doing all the fundraising for the infrastructure, so why shouldn't they be able to move ahead as they please, manage their own power? That's a really great question. And I think if we look around the world, there's different models of actual community-owned renewable uh, power projects that decentralize some of those electrical systems that we currently see. Um, BC Hydro does obviously have a monopoly on our electrical systems at this point. And being an island community, I think we do have some more options available to us. And it's going to be a matter of figuring out as an island community what that future really does look like. So what is Suilui doing about this? Valine says they're in the process of figuring that out. Everyone that I've talked with within our island communities, as well as local governments that we've been reaching out to, definitely agree that the shift needs to happen, that we want to see it happen quite quickly, that we want to have ownership over that transition, and, you know, in order to actually start taking those next steps towards a rapid transition to renewable energy, we know that we need to come together and have a really meaningful and in-depth discussion and look at what our options are and decide as a community how we're going to start embracing that transition. Haida Gwaii is a really good example of a community that wants control over its own power. Do you know of other cases where ownership is an issue? Mm-hmm, I do. For example, energy co-ops. Right. So I know that a cooperative is an organization or a business that's owned and run jointly by its members, and then the members share in any benefits or profits. So how does an energy co-op work? Well, I'm going to let Don Pettit answer that. He is the vice president of the Peace Energy Cooperative up in northern BC. We try to build membership, and the purpose of that is uh, that we can then do what we would call share offerings to our membership and raise capital through our membership uh, if they choose to invest in the project that we're bringing forward. And then we would produce a return on that investment for our member investors. So we're a for-profit incorporated cooperative. So if I'm understanding this right, you buy shares in the co-op, and then that gives you the right to invest in an energy generation project that belongs to the co-op. Is yeah, that right? That's, that's right. And I've heard that there's a similar model in Vancouver, the Vancouver Energy Co-op, and in other cities as well. Seems like this idea is growing. Has the, has the Peace Energy Co-op developed any energy projects? Mm-hmm, it has. Back in the 2000s, there was a lot of wind prospecting going on up north, and the co-op found a ridge near Dawson Creek that looked pretty good to them. BC Hydro had put a wind monitoring station up. They were thinking about developing their own wind at that time. 
but they had but they abandoned that uh, idea just about the time we formed our cooperative. So we took over that wind monitoring station from them and acquired all of their wind data. So did they go ahead with the project? Yep. They ended up building a wind farm. It's now called the Bear Mountain Wind Park. And were they able to raise enough money through the cooperative structure to do that? No. In fact, it took Altagas out of Calgary to invest $200 million as a partner to make it work. So who owns it now? Well, aside from Altagas and the Peace Energy Co-op, there's Aeolus Wind Power. And those three partners get the royalties and divvy them up. And that helps the co-op keep going. They get to research new projects. And, of course, it pays dividends to the investors. All right. And is the Peace Energy Cooperative moving forward with any other projects? They'd like to. Well, we're doing um, a lot of commercial work and a lot of homework, rooftops. But we're also now beginning to plan our own solar farm. And we're thinking uh, $1.5 million would, would be a nice size to start with. And we can raise that capital entirely internally with our membership so that we will then own it 100%. What's stopping them from building the solar farm? Okay, we have to understand a little bit about how BC Hydro buys power from people and businesses who produce it. So we have an electricity grid system, right, which is how we get energy delivered to our house. Right, let's talk about an example. Say I wanted to put some solar panels on my roof. Go ahead. And in the summer, you produce more power than you use, so it goes into the grid, and hydro gives you a credit, and that, of course, brings your bill down in the winter when you're using more electricity from hydro. And this is called net metering, and it is possible in BC. So if I'm producing more than I need, I can sell it to the grid, and if I'm not producing enough to meet my needs, then I pay for power from BC Hydro like I would if I didn't have solar panels on my roof. Exactly. And Don Pettit says that system works great in BC, probably the easiest in the country. It's easy to apply for. And as long as it's set up properly, you're in. But if you want to produce more than 100 kilowatts, you need to be an independent power producer and have a separate contract with BC Hydro. We talked about that a little bit in our last episode with the Run of the River project. So why can't the co-op do that? Well, Don says they'd love to. But actually, that's not even an option right now in BC. That um, that whole program has been temporarily shelved because, well, the, the reason that they're giving is that it is fully subscribed. In other words, they have as much as many contracts in that regard as they want right now, and they don't want any more. It's all on hold right now as far as anything bigger than 100 kilowatts of any kind, wind, solar, anything. I assume that's because of the Site C Dam? Exactly. You might as well kiss solar and wind goodbye forever in BC. Because, A, we don't need that power, the, B, the, the Site C power. So why on earth would they be asking for any more? So if they go ahead and build that, We'll probably not see another wind turbine or solar panel in B.C. for a very long time. Is his assumption right? If we're going to stop burning oil and gas, which we need to because of climate change, and instead if we power everything with electricity, we're going to need a lot of electricity, are we not? Yeah, well, the question of whether Site C is going to meet all of our electricity demands is not as straightforward a question as you might think, Caitlin. I guess we did see that even in the submissions last summer to the BC Utilities Commission and the review of the dam, there was varying opinions as to future demand for electricity and how we might meet that. Yeah, it all depends on your assumptions. For example, Caitlin, do you think we need to power an LNG industry? Well, (laughs) from a climate change perspective, the science is very clear that if we want to 
keep our communities safe from the impact of climate change, like wildfires and droughts and flooding and so on, uh, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So that means no LNG industry. So I guess if it was business as usual and we wanted to keep having an LNG industry, then that was going that would require a lot of electricity. Mm-hmm. But if we recognize that, in fact, there are limitations to how much coal and oil and gas that we can burn and that we do need to be shifting to a new economy, and we look at how much electricity we're going to need through that lens, then that means stopping the fracking, and presumably then we have fewer electricity needs. Certainly we don't have a big draw on it like LNG would be. You know, that's one assumption. Other assumptions would be around maybe technology. You remember those fiber building blocks we told folks about in episode two? Well, what if those get widespread use? That could be a big impact on how much electricity we need to heat houses. Are we going to start to build the kinds of communities we talked about in an earlier episode where, you know, they're walkable communities. People walk around and maybe don't need as many electric cars on the road. Right. Then again, we don't need as much electricity. So it seems like it's a combination of really reducing our demand for electricity. Um, and when we when we consider future sources of energy, we have to look at not just business as usual, but what's this new economy going to look like and how are we going to power it and how are we really going to conserve energy? And we can change our thinking of that in ways that people haven't even considered yet. For example, um, we could even reconsider trucking our food around and getting those electricity-guzzling big rigs off the road. I spent some time with Matthias Zapatal. He's a farmer near Prince George, and he's able to grow significant amount of lettuce year-round, even in our cold northern climate using solar energy and aquaponic. If you would lo- use only the farmers which are around here today, not tomorrow, not in a year, not in 10 years, today, and would you, they could grow all the vi- potatoes, all the cabbage, what you need in a year here in Prince George. So you're going to hear more from him in our bonus episode, but that's the kind of thinking that we're talking about. It doesn't just have to be what we simply know right now. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like trying to figure out how much energy we need and what the kind of ownership structure might look like could be best on a more local level where a community assesses what their energy needs are and then how best to to meet those needs. And Caitlin, that's what energy democracy is all about. Imagine BC where we don't have the Site C dam, but instead 10 years from now, almost every community is powered by alternative energy, wind, solar, biomass, geothermal, maybe the tides. But the point is their power is produced close to the community and distributed within a smaller area. And that would be a resilient system, right? I, I think about last summer when the, the big wildfires through the province just about cut off some of the key transmission lines. And so if we had energy generated closer to home, we'd be more resilient to those kind of disasters. Yeah, you're not going to knock the whole province out with one key mm-hmm. cut to the lines. And the prices and supply would match the needs of the community. And that's important for places like Haida Gwaii. Energy democracy is all about who owns the ability to generate power and distribute it. What about private companies then? Would they still have a role in generating energy? Maybe. You know, if you'll remember back with Don Pettit and the Peace Valley Energy Co-op, they needed Altagas to come in with $200 million to make that wind farm work. But what energy democracy means is that Altagas wouldn't be able to have a majority ownership or even enough ownership in any venture to disrupt what's best for the community in order to chase 
private profits. And the majority ownership would be restricted to entities that have local accountability. So maybe it's an energy co-op, maybe it's a local economic development fund, even the municipalities themselves. But it would effectively take big multinationals out of the equation as majority owners in, in our power. Right. So the point is that communities would really have a say. What else is important with energy democracy? Well, operating the grid would happen at a local level or a regional level. And of course, some power planning would be done then. But there's probably still going to be need for a provincial utility. There are safety concerns. You want to make sure that everybody still has access and there is equity across the province when it comes to who gets power and at what price and and availability. So there would probably have to be somebody. I think what's really important when it comes to energy democracy is it would have to have local representation that was accountable, again, closer to the people. Which may be different from our current scenario, where many people feel that BC Hydro is not really accountable to us. Yeah, Don Pettit from the Peace Energy Co-op agrees with you. And he says governments are to blame. The electrical policy in BC is a shambles. It's a mess. And... um, uh, it's, uh, governments have just raped and pillaged the uh, BC Hydro, BC Hydro for a long time, and it's just a wreck. It's uh, I don't think anybody knows what the future holds for BC Hydro. But Caitlin, despite that, Don is still really hopeful for BC. He says there's an alternative energy industry all ready to go. Oh, I'm totally hopeful. Oh, we're all ready to go. Everything's ready to rock. There's no question. But government policy has has been deliberately. You can only say deliberately, because what else could it be? Holding it back. So, yeah, we're all ready to rock. It's got a super bright future here. We have some of the best wind in the world and some of the best solar. And probably geothermal, if we ever get around to looking at that. <clears throat> so, no, I, I, I think there's huge promise in the province. Uh, we're no, or we can catch up very quickly. Uh, but uh, all, all of this is set as government policy at the highest levels. And that's what we're waiting for. It really does all come down to politics, doesn't it? Yep. You know, Sue, the Site C story isn't finished yet. There are still First Nation court cases to be heard, so the government does still have time to change its mind. But more than that, we need a vision from this government that would scale up these exciting initiatives that we've been hearing about, like the energy co-op, and have them replicated all over the province, and doing it instead of just talking about it, and so doing more to support these innovators. And Sue, we're going to talk more in our next episode about how you, the listeners, can get involved to help speed up our transition to the clean energy economy. Just as a teaser, though, one small step that you can do right now is to ask the BC government to do more in this direction. And if you go to the Sierra Club website, you can send a letter to the BC government. Yeah, and and Caitlin... This is not an easy episode for us to do. We know it's dense. We know it's very conceptual. We know it's not necessarily easy to get your head around this. But it really is the foundation of how we can move forward with an alternative energy industry in BC. Yeah, and this whole podcast mini-series, we're talking about the transition to a clean energy economy and how we shift away from burning fossil fuels for energy towards electricity. And so, again, this question of who generates it, how do we generate it, how do we control it, Um, how do we ensure that it's distributed equitably. Um, These are are really important questions, that there's a conversation that needs to happen in the province of BC. And we're not Uh, saying there are easy answers. They don't don't sit in front of us right now, but you're right. That conversation is important, very important. 
And that's it for this episode of Mission Transition. In our next episode, we're going to wrap up this mini-series with a look at where we go from here. You can find out more about Suilweed on Haida Gwaii, the Peace Energy Cooperative and the Vancouver Energy Co-op, and more about energy democracy all on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. In this week's bonus episode, you can hear more about how Matthias Sapital, he's that Prince George man who's growing lettuce year-round with water from his tilapia fish farm, is uh, showing us ways of rethinking how we spend energy to meet our needs. This is a conversation about the transition to a clean energy economy, and you can join that conversation on our Sierra Club BC Facebook page and Twitter. And you could win a pair of Sierra Club BC earbuds by joining that conversation. Tell us what role you think BC Hydro should play in BC in the future. Tag at Sierra Club BC and we'll enter your name in a draw to take place at the end of March. This podcast series has been made possible by the North Growth Foundation. If you'd like to see Sierra Club BC produce more podcasts, please consider making a donation at sierraclub.bc.ca. My thanks to Caitlin Vernon. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. And always to Kat Zimmer for her incredible technical assistance. And thank you for listening.